We start a new series this week. Uh, there is kind of a little bit of a theme to this latter half of the year for our worship theory, or series. Where I'm kind of doing like light theologies on things, kind of exploring different general topics that involve our faith and kind of exploring what do they mean. So we did at, at Easter kind of uh, a theology of revelation. What is God's revelation to us, especially in the living in breathing, resurrected Jesus, and then how does the Word of God relate to that revelation? Then we moved into doing kind of a theology of worship. What does worship mean to us, and what does it look like in our church? And now we're moving on. We're looking at what does it mean to actually be the church? What does it mean to be the people of God? And so we're going to be using four different analogies over the next four weeks, this Sunday included, uh, to look through what it means to be the church. Uh, this Sunday, we are looking at what does it mean to be God's temple, because that's one of the most popular analogies in the New Testament. So let's turn now to Ephesians, and let us see what God says about us being his temple. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God, the word of the Lord. Well, from the earliest days, humans have sought a connection with the divine. In fact, there are early, early kind of archeological evidence and especially the earliest written evidence of human history shows us that humans were obsessed with trying to somehow connect with the divine nature of all things and connect to the divine entity or entities in some cases that created everything that they experienced and they saw. And so the humans began to recognize that if they were going to connect to the divine, then they, they looked at the divine almost like just greater humans. And so if the divine was going to connect with them, the divine needed some kind of place to live. And so we see all over the planet temples built for the divine to come and to dwell and be among us human beings. And so there's temples in ancient Greece to different gods and goddesses, and you see them all over the Mediterranean world that uh, Alexander the Great took over, and the Romans kind of took over that empire, and you see them built all over the place, these great temples, the most expensive buildings, the largest buildings, the most glorified buildings in their area. And you can see it, it goes beyond just Greece, it goes beyond just the Western world, if my thing will work. No, we went down. Goodness, my entire sermon is based on what you can see on these screens. So, we're gonna, who wants to donate money for a new computer? So, let me see if I can, 
Well, let me see if I can translate it for you guys. You can see I had pictures of Shinto temples in Japan, of Buddhist temples in China, of Muslim mosques and temples all over the world, including Mecca. If you've never seen images of Mecca, it is quite astounding. Uh, And so these images that we can go on the internet and we can look at show us a heritage of humanity desiring after a connection with the divine. And yet having an assumption, having a thought that because we are limited to a space and a time and that we have to have a dwelling space in our own homes, that the divine must want that as well. And so we began to build these spaces. And of course, the Jewish people were no different. The Jewish people were just like everybody else. And so as soon as the Hebrews grew up and were large in number, and then they were brought by God out of Egypt, they began to desire after a space for their God who had done so many miraculous things for them and taking them out of slavery to come and to dwell. And in fact, in the human uh, way of thinking of things back then, and especially in the Near Eastern way of thinking of things, the earth was this flat disk and there was this dome over the earth. And on the very tippy point of the dome, there was a temple a dwelling place of God in the heavens, and that they wanted to build something that would resemble that, that would be kind of a reflection of that down here on earth. And so they began to build something. Now, at that time, they were nomadic people. They were wandering through the desert for 40 years. And so God gives them the command through Moses in Exodus to build the tabernacle. And he gives very specific instructions about how that tabernacle is to look, how it's to be constructed, and what kind of materials to construct it out of. All of those things were for the purpose of symbolism to show them something about the nature and the character of God. And so in this way, in these things, they built this tent that was divided into multiple different sections. And the very back of the tent was considered the Holy of Holies. And who would go into the Holy of Holies? Who was the only person allowed? The high priest. At the time, who was the high priest? Aaron, Moses' brother, right? Um, And so Aaron would be the only one who was allowed, and then soon his sons, he would train them, and then they would be kind of take over the role and and whatnot, and, and it would be passed down after that. There was after that the holies, an area in front of the Holy of Holies that they would often make incense sacrifices and other things like that in, and only priests were allowed in that. Then outside of that, outside of that, outside of the tent, there was a courtyard surrounded by kind of cloth walls. And that courtyard was meant for anybody, any of the Hebrew people to come and to worship. And in those days, they had kind of a wash basin where you can come and you can be washed clean. And they also had an altar out there. Now, what was the altar for? animal sacrifices, right? To make atonement for the people of Israel, or if you yourself wanted the priest to make atonement to you, you would bring your animals inside the tabernacle. And so all of this needed to be mobile because the people were mobile. And so they would build it out of cloth and they had these big wooden poles and stuff and everything was, had rings on it with poles through it so you could just pick it up and you can go at any time. But they were very heavy as well, so it took lots of people to carry these things. So if you could imagine these people just bringing all this stuff through the desert as they were nomadic people heading to the Holy Land. What an amazing sight it must have been to see these people pack up all they had and take it with you. How many of you have ever moved in your life? 
How many of you, when you've moved, keep your hands up. How many of you, when you've moved, have thought, I need to get rid of a lot of this stuff? Yeah, all of us, right? I mean, how many times must the Israelites have thought, do we really need this big wash basin made out of bronze? Do we really need this altar that's huge and, and weighs a ton? They must have thought that over and over, right? And yet they dedicated themselves to controlling, maintaining this space that God can dwell on earth among his people. Once they settled, once they got into the promised land and they took over the land that God had given to them, they settled in Jerusalem. The king settled in Jerusalem, David, and he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which was the thing that was held in the Holy of Holies. He wanted to bring that back. Let me see if we can reboot this and show you guys some of the images. But God said to David that he was not going to be the one to build the temple because David had been a man of war. That because of his conquering, because of him needing to go out, his hands were covered in too much bloodshed. And so he was not going to be the one, but it was going to be his son who was Solomon who was going to build the temple. Let me show you. This is a Shinto um, temple in Japan. This is a Buddhist temple actually in Japan as well. This is a... uh, large mosque in India, uh, Indonesia, I think. And this is Mecca. Those are people, by the way, which is incredible. So this is the first temple that Solomon built. Solomon was told, um, or this was what Moses told, this is what the tabernacle looked like. So very, very nomadic with the cloth all over the place. And it was built from the offering of the people who brought forth gold and silver and all kinds of stuff, um, materials to to be able to bring it. And the craftsmen came. But then God said to uh, Solomon that you can build a house for the Lord here in Jerusalem. And so Solomon built a temple. And it was a modest temple. The temple of Solomon was not huge. It was, it was a big, I mean, it would be big. It'd be bigger than our, our space, tall-wise, I mean, height-wise, and it would be uh, very impressive. But it was not as big as the second temple, which is what most of us envision or think of when we think of the temple on the Temple Mount. But there's an illustration of it. They were able to finally install a permanent altar. They had a, a sea of bronze, they called it, that was carried by four oxen on each side or three oxen on each side for the 12 tribes of Israel. And, uh, and that was a place where they would wash and ritual purity and use water for that. And you can see inside there the division of the Holy of Holies in the furthest spot. And then, it, so it was representative of the same kind of instructions that God gave to the people of Israel when they built the tabernacle. And so this is what it was. But over time, the people of God rebelled against God, and they began to worship other gods, build temples and statues and other things, and worship their surrounding gods, and they wouldn't worship God alone. And so God would occasionally withdraw his protection of them, and then people from the surrounding nations would come in, and they would take over the land. Now, the temple was kind of semi-destroyed, and Jerusalem was semi-destroyed multiple different times through different captivities, and then they would rebuild it in different eras. Till finally, Josephus tells us, Herod the Great wanted to bring Jerusalem back to the prominence that it once had. He wanted to make the temple something to be held from all the surrounding nations, that everybody who would come and would see it would know that Jerusalem was super, super important. Why? Was it because Herod absolutely loved the God of the Jews and was doing it out of devotion? 
No, where was he king? Of Judea, right? And so the bigger the temple, the bigger his ego. And so he wanted it to be impressive so that he himself would look impressive. But he also was doing it as a favor to the Jewish people so that they would be happy about his leadership, about, about his rule, and they would be kind of classified to follow after him because of what he built. So this is what they built, a huge temple complex, which if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll see that Temple Mount, this, the walls and everything, but it's all kind of been reduced because the Romans completely sacked it and destroyed it in 70 AD. But it was something to be in, just beheld. It was insanely gorgeous, and it was huge. If you go now and you look at the Dome of the Rock, the Dome of the Rock is probably about as big as our sanctuary space and a little bit, and it's probably dang near as high as at least up to our kind of the middle of our towers. And yet the temple that Herod built miniaturized that little dome of the rock mosque that's built there now. It would have been at least three times as tall, probably about one and a half times its width and two to three times its length. It was huge. It was something that you would have seen from very far off as you were approaching Jerusalem, sitting up on top of Mount Moriah. This is actually a picture, and it's on the front of your bulletins, of a model in the museum in Israel. Uh, somebody went back and looked at all the descriptions of Josephus and some of the other historians and figured out what the, the city of Jerusalem looked like when Jesus was there, including the temple and the temple mount, and then intricately put together this model. And it was at some hotel at some point, but then that hotel closed down and it got moved to the museum. And it's really cool to look at, but this is a very very well done scale model of what the temple would have looked like. And if you go up and walk on the Temple Mount, you can get an idea of how huge it was because of how much space it took up on that Temple Mount. But God then did something, right? In this space where we had this temple, where the people of God believed that God was actually present in the Holy of Holies, that it was like his footstool on earth, he sat in his temple in heaven and his feet reached down, and they touched the mercy seat where the Ark of the Covenant was down in the temple in Jerusalem. They believed that his presence was there, and yet God showed us that he is not like us. That he doesn't need a home, a house, a dwelling place to be present among his people. And in fact, if you pay close attention to the Old Testament, you can see throughout the entire prophecies of the Old Testament of the coming Messiah that he was promising them that there would be a day when they would not need such a place, but that God would be present in the heart of all those who called upon him. And that the people of God themselves would become the temple. And so the temple is actually the analogy. The temple is the metaphor that describes what the people are to become. And of course, the Jews weren't paying attention close enough, no humans really were, to recognize that when he announced himself in the coming of the Messiah, in the birth of Jesus, he called Jesus what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. 
the beginning of a new era, the beginning of a non-temple era, the beginning where buildings were just a place where we gathered, not the place where we believed God was present, because it was God who's present in us that matters, the beginning of this new era. And of course, Jesus lived his entire life as a witness, as an example, and as the presence of God in first century Jerusalem. But the amazing thing about Christianity is that we teach that Jesus was not defeated on the cross, even though he went to the cross, that there's what after the cross? Resurrection, Easter. And so Jesus ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, and he implores the Father to send the Holy Spirit to his people so that we might be in that triune relationship of Father, Son, Spirit for all eternity as he is sitting at the right hand of God. When I became a pastor, some shift happened in my ministry that I did not recognize would happen. I had been working in ministry for about 11 years before I got ordained as a pastor. I was a youth minister. And my job regularly was to run programs. And so if anybody ever asked me to come somewhere, to be somewhere, or whatever, they were essentially asking me to do something. So my habit was that if I was asked to show up somewhere, I would ask, okay, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to run? When I became a pastor at, our la at my last church in Plymouth, a weird thing happened where people started inviting me to come places, and I would say, what do you want me to do? And they would look at me like, do? No, we just want you to be there. And I was like, that is really weird. <laughs> I'm just going to stand around? Yeah, you're the pastor. And I found out that just my presence, just me being there, validated the entire experience of everyone else there. The pastor is here, and so it must mean that who's here? that God is here. Friends, let me tell you this right now, that is not the theology of our church. We do not have priests for a reason, because we have one high priest, and it is Jesus, and he sits mediating for us on the right hand of God the Father. And so me, as a pastor, I should really be doing for you. Don't ever ask me to just show up places, because that somehow validates your thing. My presence does not mean that God's presence is there. Do you want to know whose presence is important, that God's presence is there? You! I'm insignificant in the equation. I'm just another believer. You don't need me there so that God is there. Now, you might want me there. That's fine. Invite me. I'll come. And I'll even stand around. I've gotten used to being lazy, so don't ask me to do anything. But don't think that my presence equals God's presence. It doesn't. We don't worship God who works through intermediaries. No, we worship a God who has invited us into a relationship with him and has accomplished it through the death and resurrection of his son, his very presence with us. And then on Pentecost, after Easter, well, let's talk actually first before that, what happened in the temple at the crucifixion? What are we told in Matthew? That the temple veil, the veil that divided between the holy and the holy of holies, the place where only the high priest can go, was rent. It was ripped down the middle by an earthquake. 
symbolizing that God no longer was going to be contained to this little tiny space that only one man could enter into and come back out and tell everybody else what he experienced in there. No, God was unleashed upon all of humanity. And then the fruition came in Pentecost when we see the believers of Jesus gathered together and the Holy Spirit descends on them like tongues of fire. And they all begin to do miraculous things to witness to God's presence among them. And the same thing happens today. When any of you place your faith in Christ and you worship him, you become a part of the temple of God, the new temple, the third temple, the temple that is imperishable and cannot be destroyed by human hands and is built by God on the cornerstone that is Jesus. You become God's temple. That's significant. That's important. And it's something that all of us should feel deep within our hearts. That it's not when we come together here in this building and in this space that we become the church. When we come into this space, when we come into this building, guess what we do? We bring the church with us. We make this place the church when we come into this space because it's in our hearts that God is pleased to dwell and God brings us, God comes with us in our worship and is enthroned on our worship when we come into this space. But he doesn't sit here when we leave. When we leave from this place, guess what we do? We take God with us. And we, we, are like what you guys think I am, the presence of God to the whole world. And when you go out there, people will see what you do and what you say, and they will worship the one who leads your life. So go out there. Be the church. Jack Mitchell has a famous, famous sermon that I think I heard like 50,000 people quote in the first like two weeks I was here in this church. We don't have 50,000 members, but it felt like that. About these pillars, when he preached the sermon that dedicated this very building, he said that these pillars are an analogy of our church, that each one of you was to pick one of the stones and recognize that you are really the temple, you're really the building, and that the church's success or failure or structural integrity rests upon your integrity as being a member of this church just like the structural integrity of this building is resting on the integrity of each one of these stones. So more than anything, when we come into this building, we should be reminded that it is an analogy for what we are as the people of God. And really, it was all founded on this, this table. Because it's God who invites us into communion with him. It's God who invites us to come around his banquet table, the table of his kingdom. And he makes us to be equals and co-heirs with Jesus, that we would be rulers of his kingdom with Jesus. Because he's building us into one together, that we might be the place of his dwelling in this material world for all eternity after he recreates it. So when we come to this table, when we come recognizing that we've been invited into God's presence, we come humbled. Humbled that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, would want to dwell 
in your heart. And we also come convicted, right? Because when we think about that, we think, well, my heart's kind of dirty. <laughs> I've cluttered it up with a lot of junk. I've acted angry and bitter and sinful and, and hateful towards others, and I've been jealous or I've been greedy. And we come and we, we release those things at the sacrifice of Jesus. We ask for forgiveness and ask him as he's there to do a little house cleaning for us and make our heart new. So let us come. Let us come to this table. Let us worship God in his offering to us of communion as we eat together. Let us pray. Now go, be the temple of God. That is to say, be God's dwelling place on this earth, that your life might reflect all that he is to the world outside these walls so that they would place their faith in his mercy and grace too. Go and be the temple of God and may God dwell in you richly and bless you as you are his outside of this church. Amen.